What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Renewed Church Leaders Podcast. This is Dave. And this is Jason. And today you're going to be listening to a man named Dr. Marcus DiCarvalho. And he's talking about something that's pretty relevant to pretty much everybody, which is addictions. That's right. He's written a book that's available at renew.org for free download called Untangling Addiction. And Marcus is actually... Uh, I am told this is uncommon. He's a Christian brother, but he's also a board-certified medical doctor with the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. His focus of practice is general psychiatry and addiction medicine. Um, And the way uh, Marcus puts it is his, his main passion is helping people regain their lives and become unstuck from the addictions and mental illnesses that have kept them in the darkness. Yeah, he's also a board certified deep voice man. I don't, oh, know, yeah. I don't know if you knew that. I, I Googled it right now. <laughs> but yeah, so this is his bit from The Gathering, and he talks about this thing, neuroplasticity. So get ready for a little bit of medical jargon, but Marcus's knack for unpacking this in a way that we can all understand it is good. And if you know of somebody or have known somebody who struggled with addiction, and I think th- that's probably almost everyone today, Um, this is going to hit close to home, but it'll also give you hope that through ways and methods like Jesus style disciple making, there are ways to overcome addiction and get those that you know in addiction unstuck. So let's dive in with Dr. Marcus. Guys, it's so great to be here. My name is Marcus DiCarvalho. Every time I come back to Harpeth, I feel like I'm at home. Bobby has invited me over the last two years to do workshops and preach on Sundays on addiction. I'm just so grateful for his leadership, for looking at this topic, something that plagues our membership, plagues our society, and has been killing people all over our country. The title of today's uh, presentation is Untangling Addiction. Just a few credentials about myself. I am a board-certified medical doctor uh, with the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology. I oversee five addiction hospitals in the United States. I also run four psychiatric and addiction clinics in the Jacksonville area. The purpose of this talk today is to bring awareness to give an understanding and for you to have the ability to communicate with your membership and people you love who may be struggling with addiction. Can I see a show of hands of people here who may know somebody who struggles from an addiction to anything, porn, drugs, alcohol, okay? Can I see a show of hands of people here who may know a loved one who has died accidentally due to an opioid overdose or prescription uh, uh, issue? Look around the room, guys. 10 years ago, we would never even see one hand, and this is commonplace today. Often people ask me, they say, what is addiction? Why are these people struggling with this? Why is my loved one having this addiction issue? Why do they have this issue today? Before we can even answer that question, we have to answer the question, where does addiction begin? Does it begin with the individual whose wife finds thousands of images of internet pornography on their home hard drive? An addiction that starts at the age of nine in the United States, accidentally. Often parents ask me, they say, how can I prevent my son or my daughter from coming across pornography? You're not going to prevent anything. 
Our society is geared to use social media and the internet as a form of teaching, education, and work, and they will come across it accidentally. But what ends up happening is this individual sees his pornography, and he becomes a young male, and it becomes something that gets a part of his coping mechanisms, where he starts to find relief from the euphoria associated with watching porn. And now we have a man who's married, who cannot even have an intimate relationship, who is living a double life. Does addiction begin with the young boy who goes to his dentist to get his wisdom teeth taken out? True story. His dentist prescribes him opioid medications, the number one prescriber of opioids. He takes it and for the first time, because of a genetic deficiency to produce a chemical called dopamine, he starts to feel normal. He starts to take it to be socially accepted at school. And he finds friends who can give it to him. He starts to, give it, he starts to take it to be socially accepted and friends give it to him. He does well in school. He navigates through. He has this double life. He gets into an Ivy League school and on the day they go out for a high school graduation party, a friend of him gives him an opioid pill called Percocet that some guy down the street puts some fentanyl in there, a hundred times more powerful than morphine, and his mom finds him dead. Does addiction begin with the woman who comes home from work and she finds that one glass of wine helps dampen the anxiety of the day? And that one glass of wine becomes two glasses and three glasses and a bottle, a bottle and a half because the stresses of our life are not going to go away. And now she's facing incarceration because of multiple DUIs. These addictions lead marriages to develop codependency where one person in the marriage is the victim and the other one is the perpetrator. And the glue that keeps them together is not love and it is not God. It's, I can't live without her. Without her, I'm just, I'm a drunk. And without me, he's going to end up dead. And that keeps them together for 20 years. And after 20 years, they're done. One of us is like, I'm done with this marriage. Or does it begin when the CDC labels the opioid crisis an epidemic in our country with 80,000 people dying? They're estimating that this is going to double by next year. In order for us to understand where addiction begins, we have to understand what happens in the brain. We have evolved to experience pleasure out of things that keep us alive. We eat a meal, we feel good. We sleep, we feel good. And we repeat these behaviors since our birth. And the reason we do this is because of a chemical called dopamine. And dopamine has received a lot of media attention as being this reward chemical, this chemical associated with addiction. It makes us repeat behavior, an incredible design by God. But dopamine has an even powerful, more powerful road, uh, role. When it is released, it lays down new neural networks in the brain, new neurons that are responsible for the sleep, for the food, for the emotion, for the person you were with, for the music you were listening to, everything associated with that act. So we want to recreate that. Honey, let's go back out to that restaurant. We love it. We love the music. We love the ambiance. We love the food. We want to create that because there's a neural network that's responsible to release that dopamine to make you feel good. And we call that neuroplasticity. The brain is plastic. It's constantly changing shape. We believe this only happened through the first three years of life, but we know this is forever. Here's the problem, though. When you introduce drugs, pornography, gambling, anything that releases dopamine at much higher amounts than our natural sleep and food and even sex, 
When we do that, the brain starts to release new neural networks that are intertwined with these survival neurons. And now the brain believes it needs them to survive like food and sleep. And the brain becomes hijacked to believe that it needs pornography, opioids, nicotine, all those things just like sleep and food. When we look at the natural rewards, we see food releases a baseline level of dopamine. And we see sex actually doubles the food. And yes, God allowed us to receive pleasure out of sex because he knew we needed that in order for all of us to be here today. Amen. Now, when we look at what drug, look at, look at how much more amphetamine, crystal meth, how much more dopamine is released just from one high of crystal meth. Imagine all that dopamine now being released laying down neural networks that are responsible for, how am I gonna lie about this? How am I gonna get invited to this party in my neighborhood so I can look in their medicine cabinet and see if they have any pain pills? How am I gonna have this double life? How am I gonna find out the password to the code to the hard drive so when my wife leaves, I can watch porn? All those things become intertwined in that neural network. So what is neuroplasticity? It is the formation of new neural pathways through repetitive behaviors which release dopamine. Your brain will choose the path that releases more dopamine. Think about this. You're a young child. Your parents give you a tricycle. You can barely get on it. But you start to develop some muscles and you start to pedal and you move. Then they give you some training wheels, a five-speed, a ten-speed, the banana seat schwinn that every person in this room had a banana seat schwinn. I know you did. And now you are an expert at riding this bike in your neighborhood. You're jumping curbs, you're turning, you are awesome at riding that bike. 20 years go by, 25. You've got a career, you've got kids, you haven't ridden a bike, but you go on a trip with your family. And on that trip, there's this bike tour all around the island and you see the bikes and you're walking there and your kids are running to the bikes and they're all excited and you're like, I don't even know if I can ride this bike. You get on that bike, you sit down, you start to pedal and whew, you haven't missed a beat. And people call that muscle memory. There's no such thing as muscle memory. Muscle has no memory, it's a piece of muscle. It's neuroplasticity. It is the memories in the brain intertwined with neurons that fire onto muscles that make those muscles work. How to turn, the depth perception, ringing the bell at the right time, the feeling good never goes away for life. This is neuroplasticity from left to right. These are neurons in your brain through repetitive behaviors or drugs that release dopamine create this neural web that will never leave your brain. And what is in there? Maybe the memory of riding that bike or all the memories of when is she leaving the house? When is she gonna come back? How can I check her GPS on her phone and make sure where she is before she comes back and catches me watching porn? All of that is laid in there, all the lies. One foot in fantasy, one foot in reality, trying to balance both. How do you do that? Lying, denial. So what is addiction? In psychiatry, when we look at addiction, we look at three spheres. We look at the biological. We look at the psychological and we look at the social. What is the biological? Your genetics. What does your DNA say? Did your parents struggle with addiction? Did, did you see this growing up as a young child? Or biologically, did you suffer some type of trauma and a physician prescribed you 10 milligrams of Percocet three times a day that have to continue to go up with morphine and breakthrough pain? Biologically, did a doctor do this by prescribing medications for a trauma? Psychologically, what was your development like? What did you see in your home? Was there healthy mirroring? 
Were you brought up in the foster care system? Were you sexually abused? Was there one parent there or two parents there? Was the mirroring healthy where if you smiled, your mom looked at you and was like, oh my gosh, that's so cute. Or when you smiled, did your father say, what are you smiling at? What was the trauma that you experienced as a child? And now as an adult, you have come across alcohol, pain pills, nicotine, pornography to help with all of the racing thoughts and dreams that you can't even deal with at bedtime. And you know if you wake up and go to the kitchen and binge on a meal, you can get rest and function the next day. Socially, what is your life today? Do you go to church on Sunday? Are you part of your small group? But then intermixed through the week, you have a totally new group of friends that anything goes, double life. Is your work relationships totally different from your spiritual relationships? What is your social life today? How are your finances? How are you gonna pay the mortgage? Are you gonna be able to do your taxes? What are the stresses like that keep you up at night and you've learned with a glass of wine in the middle of the night, you can get right back to bed? So when we look at psychiatry and we look at addiction, we say, if you have all three spheres dinged, you are more than likely to develop an addiction if you use something addictive in nature. But we studied individuals like that that believed, hey, I've got the DNA of a thoroughbred psychologically. My childhood was amazing. Socially, I'm in the ministry. And we studied those people. And we found that with use alone, they can develop a full-blown addiction as well. The American Society of Addiction Medicine defines addiction as a disease, primary chronic disease of brain reward. We talked about the reward, dopamine, motivation, memory, and related circuitry. Related circuitry, we're talking about the neuroplasticity. Dysfunction in these circuits, that's where we have new neuroplastic changes. Dysfunction in these circuits leads to characteristic biological, psychological, social, and spiritual manifestations that is reflected in an individual pathologically pursuing reward and or relief, guys. The people that come to me that need help, they don't want to just go out and get high. They're not looking at porn because they like looking at sex. There's some underlying ideology of why they do what they do, and they found this thing to give them relief. They're stuck, and that's where we are moving in addiction. We are realizing people are stuck, and their brains are hijacked. So the topic we're going to talk about right now is probably the most important concept we are, going to, we are going to mention. And if you can understand this and communicate this with people you love or people in your church, you can actually save somebody's life. So I have three areas here labeled. I have judgment, reward, and memory. The first area we're going to look at is reward. It's purple. That's the area that we talked about where dopamine is released. That's called the mesolimbic system. When we use something addictive in nature, dopamine is released powerfully. It gives you a a sense of euphoria and you feel good. Now imagine with me, if you will, on a table. There's three picture frames. And in each frame, there's a picture of a seminal event in your life. It could be a baptism. It could be your marriage. It could be the birth of your child. And when you look at each photo, a little blip of dopamine, like that food and sex blip, a little blip of dopamine is released and you feel good. Now you introduce an opioid or you introduce pornography. Over time, imagine the amount of dopamine that's released every single one of those times. Those little blips, baptism, child, marriage, those little blips, it's like taking in a hammer and bam, 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 and the blips just drop. 
and the only thing important to you and your existence becomes about getting that dopamine surge that you can get from porn or you can get from alcohol or you can get from binge eating on food. Whatever it is that the brain starts to develop new neuroplastic changes to, that's what the brain will demand that you get. So your children, your career, your wife are second. And that's the most important thing to that person. The thing is that people ask, what is the, why is there this incredible permanency? Why does this happen? How, how can this happen? And it's because of the other structures of the brain that lay next to that purple area. That yellow area that's labeled memory, the tip of it, the round little ball, that's called the amygdala. And we have evolved over time to be able to develop this fight or flight response that if we're walking across the street and a bus is coming out of nowhere, our bodies will literally take over and jump us out of the way. Our lungs will hyperventilate, our eyes will dilate, our muscles will be saturated with adrenaline so we can quickly move. And we come from a place that we needed that to survive. We come from a place, from a primitive ancestry where we were don't get killed machines. But now we have this little area there that's impulsive. It's emotional. It thinks about survival. Here's the thing though. See the little loop around the back, the yellow, little yellow loop around the back? That's called the hippocampus. What is that? The hippocampus is our hard drive, all of our memories, all the great memories. If you can think back to first, second grade, an image of you, that's stored in there. Everything great, but also all the trauma, all the sexual abuse, the abandonment, the hard times, the things you saw at home with mom and dad, all the suffering, the things that may be giving you anxiety and depression today are all stored there as well. So now, when the amygdala is dealing with a conflict in its life, and it looks at it and says, is this a threat? Is this something I should get into fight or flight about? It's gonna look at that hippocampus and your past and make a decision. And if it does that, it's gotta react and go into fight or flight. But here's the issue. Gentleman, he's struggling with pornography, he doesn't wanna use it, but he's working and he's got his laptop open. And there's a pop-up, an image of porn. He clicks it off and then something else comes on back up again. As he's doing that, because he's already looked at all this porn, that little purple area is releasing dopamine onto the amygdala. Already releasing dopamine onto the amygdala. Dopamine, the most euphoric thing you have in your body. The amygdala is firing, fight or flight. It's going into the hippocampus. All the memories of all the porn you've used, you want this, you need this, you need this to survive. And before you know it, that individual is already engulfed and enmeshed in watching porn. And it's the same system that is, we have for nicotine, for opioids, for gambling, gaming, all those addictions that exist there, food binging as well. So it's the structures and how they're placed next to each other that cause this incredible permanency. Understand, an incredible system created by God for incredible things. When I look at my child, that feeling of joy is what God wanted me to have in order for me to mirror and be the greatest discipler that my child can have, but jaded and warped. So addiction is a hijacking of the pleasure reward pathway. So I'm up here and I'm speaking and you're like, wow, it sounds like this, there's no hope here. Why did Bobby even invite this guy up here? I mean, what is he gonna, how's he gonna help us? I'm not saying that there isn't hope, guys. And in fact, the majority of people who struggle with addiction will actually maintain sobriety over time. 
But what I am trying to teach you is that you will always be vulnerable to your addiction. You will always be vulnerable to the sin that plagued your life before coming, becoming a Christian. And there's tremendous humility that has to take place there in order for you to navigate your life through your past because it will always be there. And why are you always gonna be vulnerable? Because of the neuroplasticity that will never ever leave. Remember riding the bike. You'll never forget it. We say things like once a smoker, always a smoker. Why? Because of the neuroplastic changes. They will never go away. So where is the hope then, guys? Where does the hope lie? Well, far away from all of this drama right here is an area called the frontal lobe. And in that frontal lobe lies executive function, your ability to make decisions, that blue area, right and wrong, your, your value system, the scriptures, what matters to you, why you're here today, that lies in the frontal lobe, right and wrong. It's not impulsive like the brain reward pathway. It is about right and wrong. It's rational. Imagine a young teen. They don't even have a fully developed frontal lobe. Yet they look like adults. They can do quadratic equations and they can write essays and they can get into Harvard. But they don't even have a fully developed frontal lobe. They may start off that morning doing awesome. And then somebody posts something on social media about them. And it could lead to suicide. Why? Their frontal lobe is not developed enough to deal with that charged mesolimbic system, that brain reward pathway. So how do teens get their frontal lobes, guys? Discipleship, mom and dad. That's their frontal lobe through their parents. So the frontal lobes are responsible for executive function, your values, what is important to you, why you want to be sober. It is not impulsive like the amygdala. So how do we strengthen our frontal lobes? How do we do this? Through neuroplasticity. The same thing that created an addiction can create sobriety. We can create new neural networks in the frontal lobe, just like we did in the back of our brain. By identifying all the old triggers, the brain is a use it or lose it system. If you continue to use drugs, porn, alcohol, that, those areas will continue to strengthen. But if you stop, they will weaken, they'll always be there. But then now you strengthen other areas of your brain. So we teach patients how to do this, how? We teach them through discipleship, celebrate recovery, spirituality, if you, have, if you don't have a Celebrate Recovery program in your church, talk to Bobby. He has a phenomenal Celebrate Recovery program here. Why? Because Celebrate Recovery is about making disciples and discipleship, and it gives you a value-based system. It gives you a set of systems in order to follow that are spiritual in nature. So neuroplasticity, we allow for the frontal lobe to guide us to our next decision instead of the amygdala dictating and impulsively making your next decision. So like we went from left to right, okay? We can go from right to left and weaken that neuroplasticity. But then we can also go from left to right in our frontal lobe. Paul was amazing. He understood neuroplasticity because of his thorn in his side. He got it. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He knew it. If you continue to use these old ways of living, they'll strengthen and yet there you are just following. But you can create a new set of values based on Jesus. So when the frontal lobes, guys, when the frontal lobes are stronger than the brain reward pathway, what do we call that? Sobriety, okay? It's important to understand that that's because they're always charged. When the frontal lobes are weaker than the brain reward pathway, what do we call that? Relapse. 
So there's a war going on between the frontal lobe and the pleasure reward pathway. So these are my two sons here. That's uh, Rafa on the right and Paolo on the left. And in our community today, mindfulness is this huge topic. It's a huge topic and people are learning all about it. And I look at mindfulness as this. When Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane and he was going to face his torture, his death, and a separation from his father, he went to his God. He said, I am feeling sorrow to the point of death. He was not being dramatic. Quote, unquote, those are his words. And he was seeking relief. He didn't want to move forward. This is our God, the creator of this world, seeking relief. But what did he do? He stepped into his life. He prayed. Mindfulness is a form of prayer. It allows us to make room for our feelings and emotions while focusing on our values, Frontal lobe, guys, our values, not impulsively wanting to seek relief and doing whatever it takes to run. When Judas came, he didn't say, pick up your swords. Let's fight. Let's go. He said, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. He stepped into his value-based system. I took this photo with my sons, and the reason I'm showing it to you is because when I asked them to come outside and pose for this, they already knew the positions to get into when I said mindfulness. I look back at my wife. She's laughing. I'm like, how did they know? She's like, they're teaching a mindfulness at school. Why? Because the schools get it. They know it's not just about the gentleman that got caught with all the pornography. I'll get emotional. It's not just about the woman who's facing incarceration or the boy who died. But it's about my kids. It's about your kids. When Rafa is tempted or facing porn or somebody comes up to him with a Percocet and he's ready to go and find relief, I want him to choose Jesus and his values. Thank you. Wow, so Dr. Marcus said kids are beginning porn addiction at nine years old. Yeah. He finished by bringing it back to like his kids, the next generation. That's a, my, my kids are right there. And that's a huge motivator for me um, in like forming and executing a discipleship plan for my kids. But when I think about it's already time to start battling things like porn addictions with my children. That's crazy. Yeah. It, what blows my mind is how that number I feel like keeps going down. You know. know what I mean? Like through the years, I don't think it was nine years old when you're first exposed to pornography. Right. Well, you know, when we were kids at nine, at nine years old, we weren't running around with a device directly connected to anything we wanted to look at. Right. right? I mean. And one of the things that he said was, you're not going to prevent anything like by trying to get them to not see it. It's going to happen. Eventually. He's like, they... society is geared towards ed- educating through social media. And sex sells. So it's like, that is, they are going to see stuff no matter what we do. Eventually they get exposed. Gosh, I, I notice that's... it. I notice it too, like in whether it's advertising. I mean, in, app, in app, at my Apple news feed, it's like stuff yep. of a, you know, lust ridden nature kind of comes through. I mean, it's, it's, it is everywhere. Um, the other thing that um, I guess probably my biggest aha um, of his talk was he talked about how. All right, so it's dopamine that makes us feel good. That's what our body craves. And this neuroplasticity takes over. It starts, um, it starts realizing and, and getting programmed that, okay, here's this thing that I do, and it makes me feel good, and it de-stresses, and so that's what I'm after. But it's not just about like 
the high. It's not just about like the moment of getting high. It's not just about that high itself. It's all the things that you do that prepare you for the high or, um, or, or all the alibi and cover up of, you know, doing the thing. So in other words, he says that not only do you get addicted to the actual act and to the actual high itself, but like you get addicted to, uh, hiding the liquor bottles from Mm -hmm. your wife. You get addicted to, uh, deleting your history and lying to your wife about what you've been doing for the last, uh, hour. You get addicted to, uh, you know, it just, it takes my mind to places. It's like you get addicted to, he said, you know, the, the pop-up comes up and it's like, Ooh, that's, I, I, even though I'm not going to look at that now I'm at work, that little shot of dopamine, it's like, Ooh, that's the thing that I click that takes me to the porn. And, you know, it's just like they say, you want to be in an addiction. You got to beat your habits, your patterns, your behaviors. Mm -hmm. You got to stop hanging out with the people who are associated with that addiction. In some cases, um, I just think about like, I know like, uh, in college getting ready to go out, it was like, man, like you put on the right shirt, you know, you got with the buddies that you knew you wanted to go out with. And I, I just, uh, I, I think about it now and it's like, yeah, so I would run into people in college and be like, oh, that's the dude I go out with on Saturday night, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I didn't know, but the whole time it's like this dopamine is going off. Like, yeah, when you want to go out and party, like these are the people you're with, this is what you wear. This is what you do ahead of time. Here's what you do the next day. You know, it's like yeah. you know, all of that's part of the experience. Yeah. Yeah. One of the uh, most eye-opening things I think you said was he's talking about like the dopamine, the dopamine that we get from our addictions actually squashes and just dwarfs this, like the levels of normal dopamine. You remember when he said that talking about like, you know, your first child being born, that's a huge, you know, helping of dopamine or your wedding day or whatever. He's like anything that we're doing that's has an addictive substance to it squashes all those. He said he used the example of a hammer. It's just bam, bam. You're squashing those because the level of dopamine we get from pornography or from using drugs or whatever is so much higher than that that our receptors, the amygdala, I think is what he's talking about, um, it, it learns that that's the highest shot of dopamine we could possibly get. So none of those other ones even matter. It just eclipses all those beautiful So you look at life. people that are so addicted to drugs, alcohol, that they've become, they've lost their families, homes, cars are living homeless. They're just wrapped in this cycle of endless trying to find that dopamine, and it's so sad. They just, they can't help it. Yeah, the other thing he mentioned was the amount of time that that dopamine hangs around is different from different triggers. And uh, it didn't, you know, it doesn't translate well for podcasting. He showed this slide that was another just wow factor to me, which is um, it's sort of like uh, when you work out, a lot of people might get this analogy. When you work out, they say, yeah, so cardio burns, uh, you know, much more calories when you're in the moment. But then when you go into a rest phase, you know, the calorie burn stops immediately. But then you lift weights, you don't burn as much while you're working out. But man, you'll be burning calories recovering from heavy lifting for like up to 48 hours. And it's the same, like he said, with dopamine. So like your baby's born, you get this hit of dopamine and it lasts for several hours. But uh, you use pornography. He was like, that dopamine can be uh, trailing in your brain for like 72 hours. It's like Jeez. he showed this graph, like like literally days from that. Um, it's just an insidious, powerful uh, chemical addiction that happens inside you. That's crazy. Did you... um? Did you bring up the workout? 
analogy because you're trying to tell me something again. I, I think it's every trend, podcast. You know? <laughs> if you want to tell me, just tell me to work out, man. You got to tell the listeners. <laughs> again, heavy lifting. <laughs> um, what you said before, uh, bringing bring it back, uh, what you said before about how this hits home to everybody, this talk specifically hits home with me because me and my wife both have dealt with addictions on our own. And we've had a marriage that was so like codependent, both of us were, that it almost was over with within like the first year of it. Like we were wow. separated. Wow. By, by one year, we dated for, you know, five, six years and then one year of marriage and it almost ended. And and um, it took a small group of people. Thank God we were connected to a group. This is long before I knew what a discipleship group was, but we were in a small group at church and there was a couple in there that had been through the exact same thing, like eerily through the exact same thing. Somebody in our church told me, hey, you need to call so-and-so and have your wife call his wife and just meet up. And man, I called that guy once or twice a day during this separation period. And she met with this lady and called her once or twice a day too. And they, those two people saved our marriage. Like if there's ever been like an advocate, somebody to be an advocate for a small group is what you need is me in summer, you know, because awesome. at the time we were coasting through marriage. We had no clue that we needed it. Yeah. We, I just kind of wanted to, I was like, well, I was supposed to do this because everybody at church is doing small groups. So I guess I'll do this too. But dude, it was the lifeline. And now I know I've always got to have a small group because you never know when you're going to need somebody like that. You know, so I've seen firsthand how discipleship and, things like that can help you kind of, like Dr. Marcus said, create new pathways, healthier pathways in your brain, um, replacing those bad activities. And that's the hope too, right? I mean, so that's, first of all, that's a great testimony to Jesus-style discipleship. Mm -hmm. But that's the hope that I think he gives us too. I'm not sure if he uh, emphasizes it quite enough, but it's that, he says it in the beginning, it never stops. Neuroplasticity, you know, the kind of, the old, you know, fable that's out there, the myth out there, is that it's something that, oh, your brain develops when you're a kid, and then that's it. You know, you're you're locked. But he's like, no, this is all throughout your life. You're developing neuroplasticity. You're 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 molding your brain into new patterns and new behaviors are forming. And and that can be a positive thing, right? Through through something like you mentioned, a Jesus style discipleship group, you can be uh, transformed rather than conforming to the patterns of this world. Yeah. And you mentioned marriage too. So, um, you know, uh, my marriage with Alex is, uh, fortunately, it's a really good. We feel very blessed. But one thing that causes us some strife, and I think it is related to neuroplasticity and addiction, is the iPhone. Mm, thanks, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> thanks, <laughs> exactly. Mr. Jobs. It's like, and whoever created the little red number that pops up on every uh, app, like I, whether it's my news feed or Facebook or even just like my fitness pal. Like if there's a notification, I've got to go see what it is. Clear that alert. <laughs> Open that email. <laughs> What'd you do today? Uh, I cleared off all my notifications today. I have today. no red numbers on my phone. <laughs> Success. But uh, I would commend to anybody who hasn't seen it. There's a Ted talk out there by Simon Sinek. And he talks about how through research he's done, he realizes that you get a hit of dopamine Every time you get a text, every time somebody likes wow. a post you put out there in the world, every time uh, somebody friends you on Facebook or uh, or whatever, if somebody reaches out to you on your phone, it's like a small hit of dopamine. The world likes me. Somebody loves me. Somebody liked a picture of my face. 
That's it. And, 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 and it creates this thing. He talks about, man, if you find yourself walking from room to room in your house with your phone in your hand, he's like, do you think that's an addiction? Like if you wake up in the morning and rather than roll over and kiss your loved one, good morning, you roll over and see what's on your iPhone. <laughs> I just thought of somebody rolling over addicted. and kissing their phone. That's what's happening now. You roll over and you kiss both your iPhone. Roll over to your separate nightstands and kiss your phone. That's it. So. Well, I just found out a new addiction I have. Thanks, Jason. <laughs> but seriously, though, if this podcast really spoke to you today, if you find yourself being stuck in a cycle of addiction, I just want to encourage you that there is hope for all of us. And uh, I want you to go to renew.org, click books, scroll down to see Untangling Addiction by Marcus DiCarvalho, and go ahead and start reading that and start your journey towards re- like kind of shaping the neuroplasticity in your brain towards healthy things, you know? And if you're not plugged into a local church community or some sort of discipling group, I think that's step two. Amen. Thanks, guys, for joining us on another Church Leaders podcast here at Renew. I'm Jason. I'm Dave. We'll see you guys next time.